going to start a new sermon series this morning, and the, uh, the origin of it actually came out of our reading plan last year when we were reading through the New Testament together, and we got to this section in Luke's Gospel, and, uh, and it really just jumped out at me as um, Jesus is so steadfastly making his way to uh, be the sacrifice for the sins of humanity all these different interactions that he has along the way, the different sorts of people that he runs into, the different sorts of sort of crises that emerge in, in the gentle and the wonderful way that he handled them. So uh, there's value, I think, in, in these reading plans. And I want to just encourage you this morning because we're in Leviticus. And, uh, and I want to, to sort of for one thing, let's, let's get this straight. Leviticus is not the book you want to get behind in, okay? Because if you try to read Leviticus as sort of in that catch-up mode, you're going to numb yourself. Uh, you're not going to get much out of it. So try, if you can, to stay with the, the reading plan. But also, remember this, just the larger perspective of the book of Leviticus is that it is about God's holiness. And so when you're reading through these these rules and regulations and expectations, I want to encourage you to sort of step back a, a little bit, to zoom out a little bit and say, what is this teaching me? What is really the principle at play? A principle that God deserves our offerings or a principle that sin is costly or a principle that we ought to approach our worship of God with reverence. So rather than getting caught up in the very details, which a lot of us would be inclined to do and say, I don't understand how this applies to me. If you take a step or two back, recognizing that Leviticus is about the holiness of God, and you start to look for principles, I I do trust that you will find your reading through this book a lot more encouraging and a lot more applicable. And uh, who knows, maybe a sermon series will come out of Leviticus someday, but probably not. (laughs) How many of you have played the game of golf? Quite a few of you, all right, all right. So if you're familiar at all with the game of golf, then you know the traditional round of golf is 18 holes. And those holes are divided in half. Um, in what is called the inner nine, or the front nine, and what would be the outer nine, or the back nine. And the transition between the inner nine and the outer nine, as you're making your way through the golf course, is known as a turn. As one completes the first nine holes and Uh, moves to the last nine, we call that making the turn. It signifies the beginning of the latter part, the the beginning, if you will, of the end of the match. So for the next several weeks, as we make our way through this season of Lent and onward to Easter, We're going to spend Sunday messages looking at some of Jesus' interactions with the people after he has figuratively made the turn. Now, don't get confused. Jesus is not golfing. But he is in the final stretch of his earthly contest. He has made the turn to Jerusalem, to the place where he will offer himself 
up to death on a cross as the payment for the sins of those who will put their faith in him. The sermon series is Making the Turn. And Luke describes the moment it happened. So turn with me if you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. We'll start reading in verse 51. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we need you for everything. We surely do need you to comprehend your word to us and to see how it applies. We thank you that you have given us the gift of this word. It reveals yourself to us. It reveals our Savior. And every once in a while, it shows us a bit about ourselves. So, Father, wherever that may take us this morning, we pray that we might learn a little bit more about you, a little bit more about Jesus, a little bit more about ourselves, and that we might leave this place having been fed some substantive truth that will actually make a difference in how we conduct ourselves, how we see things, what we believe, and how we feel. All of that can happen because you are a good God. We thank you for the gift of your word as we study it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 51 of Luke 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is, taken up to heaven, when the time drew close for him to be handed over to the chief priests and the Pharisees, to be killed and arise from the dead as he predicted that he would, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. If you just put yourself there for a moment, you might come to believe that this couldn't really have been an easy decision for Jesus to make or really a great time in his life because it meant that he was going to die. And no one really looks forward to that prospect, particularly Jesus knowing how he was going to die. So it couldn't have been an easy decision for him to make. And yet, unlike the prophet Jonah, you remember Jonah? God gave Jonah a message. God said, I want you to go and I want you to preach to these people called the Ninevites, people whom Jonah considered to be his enemies. And what did Jonah do? He, basically, God gave him instructions to travel to Nova Scotia, and he ended up in San Diego. That's, that's really kind of what happened there. He couldn't really have gone much further, much faster. At least that was his intent, to get out of the way. I'm not going to preach to my enemies. I don't like those people. I'm not going to do anything for those people. Jesus is very unlike Jonah, in that when he has his orders and it's time to go, he turns his face to go to Jerusalem and he moves toward the Father's will. He moves toward the direction that God wants him to go, toward the fulfillment, which is going to include great pain and suffering and torture, humiliation, and ultimately his death. He's tried to explain what is going to happen to his disciples a few times now. 
but they really haven't been able to grasp it. And that tells us that Jesus is actually bearing this burden of his impending suffering with no sympathy and no understanding whatsoever from the humans that are closest to him. So it's really a lonely decision, not just a hard decision, but a lonely decision that Jesus is making, right? They just don't understand, which kind of explains some of the conversations the disciples are having along the way. Because you read about that and you're going, we know what's going to happen, we get it, but why are these guys so tone deaf? Why are they so insensitive to this Savior and, and to this friend? They didn't really understand. And so Jesus truly made this turn alone. Luke tells us that he set his face. In our vernacular, we might say he made up his mind. Um, He set his mind to it. We all know people, maybe we're one of those people who, once our mind is set on something, there's no moving us. Sometimes we call that stubbornness. In the positive, though, we would call it resolve. Jesus is resolved to do what he came to do. And so Luke uses this phrase that points us actually to an Old Testament messianic passage from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 50, the prophet describes Jesus. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. To face extreme challenges, one must be resolved. Do you agree with that? You have to be ready. You have to be prepared. You have to be resolved if you're going to make it through the hardest of times. You can't just look for resolve in the moment. You can't just hope that it shows up when you need it most. Jesus has set his face, has made the turn to the city that kills the prophets and the city that's going to kill him too. This journey, the more direct route at least, is going to take him through a region known as Samaria. Verse 52, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Now, Samaria was this region between Galilee and Judea occupied by a racially mixed group of people who had both a Jewish and a Gentile heritage. And there existed a long-standing feud between the Jews and the Samaritans. Just to put it simply, they didn't like each other. They did not get along. And part of the mutual disdain that they had had to do with the differing practices of religion. The Samaritans had their own version of Scripture. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim. 
Their worship was different from that of the Jews. And some Jews who didn't want to defile themselves by even being in the presence of Samaritans would walk around the territory of Samaria, take the longer route just so that they wouldn't have to interact. But Jesus, he opts to go through as he had done before. And this time he sends messengers ahead of him to make preparation for him, that is to arrange some sort of lodging, maybe some hospitality, some nourishment to help him on the journey. Verse 53 says, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When the Samaritans learned that Jesus was journeying to this place that they had no regard for, this city which has a temple that competed with their own, full of people that they didn't even like, they declined to offer any hospitality. Maybe this was a racial thing. It could very well have been. Maybe it was a religious thing. It probably was. It probably actually was both. The bottom line is the Samaritans turned Jesus away. He's not welcome there. And here our Lord experiences prejudice. And here our Lord is rejected. And so the writer of Hebrews can say, we do not have a high priest uh, who, who has not experienced, right? Who is not sympathetic with our weakness, but one who has experienced temptations of every kind. Maybe you've been prejudiced against. Maybe you have been rejected. Guess what? Jesus knows all about it. He knows all about it. They say no. Jesus, you and your disciples aren't welcome here. So let's think about that for just a second. Knowing what we know, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. God in human form. Jesus is the author of creation. John's Gospel tells us this, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus made this place, this little dusty patch of real estate that he wants to go through. He made it. And not only that, it belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And the Samaritans have figuratively driven a stake in the ground, and on it says, no trespassing. Let that sink in for just a second, okay? Let it sink in so that you can appreciate the humility of our God. So that you can appreciate the forbearance of our Lord. So that you can appreciate what Jesus endured. City of Light, I don't know if you've ever listened to any of their music, but I would recommend it to you. If you haven't, just look them up. You'll find great music. They sing about this steadfast love of God, this humility of Jesus, in a song titled, What Love My God. What love my God would bring you down to earth? What king would take a low and lonely birth. Yet to this dark and broken place you came 
to sleep beneath the stars that you have made. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This Jesus journeying to that cross, carrying the burden of his imminent death all alone, subjects himself once more to the whims and the short-sightedness of men who say, we don't want you, Jesus. You can't stay here. There is no room for you in this Samaritan village. So what happens next? What now? How do you think you would handle that sort of blatant rejection? What is your response when someone tells you no? What do you do when you have plans and the choices of others frustrate them, make you take a different course than the one you want to take? Well, we know from this text how Jesus' disciples handled the situation. Verse 54 And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So here we get a little glimpse of why maybe Jesus refers to James and John as the sons of thunder, right? They have been with Jesus for quite a while, and yet they are clearly still works in progress. Amen? Can you relate to that? Yeah. They still hadn't quite got a hold on their tempers. They still weren't perfect at putting into practice and living out the values that Jesus had been talking about and teaching them and and demonstrating with his own life. James and John are offended. What do you mean, no? What do you mean? We aren't welcome here. We can't come through here. These Samaritans are literally in the way of Jesus getting to Jerusalem. And James and John's response, their answer to this problem, is to call in an airstrike and wipe them out. And so, so friends, you thought that cancel culture was a modern phenomenon, didn't you? If somebody opposes you, if they have a different view, if they hold to something that you find morally reprehensible, if they get in your way, if they threaten your well-laid plans, then clearly the thing to do is eliminate them. Right? Cancel them. I know that we are hearing about canceling a lot these days, and we are seeing it with enough frequency to think that it's relatively new But friends, 
Neither this desire nor this practice is a recent development. The custom of seeking the destruction of our opponents is long-standing in human history, and one could argue goes as far back as Cain and Abel. When you think of it, it's what the scribes and Pharisees thought they were doing to Jesus when they had him crucified. We're going to cancel him. We're going to get rid of his influence. He doesn't think the way we think. He doesn't talk the way we talk. He doesn't value what we value. We're going to cancel him. Murder, of course, is a very extreme form of canceling our enemies. It certainly continues today. But there is another more accessible, more common method of cancellation these days I think might apply more to us as Christians in this environment than, say, murder, because I know we can get good and mad, but I doubt any of you are going to rush right out and put an end to somebody. Well, what I am talking about or want to talk about here in the next few moments, well, perhaps that would be a greater temptation for you because there is a less lethal, more socially acceptable method of cancellation. It is not the assassination of a person, per se, but the assassination of character. And its primary weapon is not a gun, but a keyboard. Be aware, friends, the digitally connected world makes it easy for anyone with a cause or an axe to grind to gin up a crowd, to form a posse, to administer an online version of frontier justice. No trial, no judge, no jury. Guilty until proven innocent. And by then the damage is done. The goal is achieved. You and I might read about James and John and what they wanted to do to the Samaritans and be offended by this knee-jerk reaction they're having, this callous response. But we ought to at least be asking ourselves, with the posts and the reposts, with the digital slander and the incendiary rhetoric that we might create, and if not create, at least consume, what sort of fire are we calling down? Most of us understand, maybe more than we would want to admit, the desire to be rid of those who set themselves up against us. Let me confess and say that the first version of this message said something along these lines. Most of us understand, maybe more than we want to admit, the temptation to vaporize our enemies. I thought, my goodness, that's harsh, and that really probably is only me. I'm sure none of you would want that. But is it okay, especially as professing Christians, is it okay for us to cancel our enemies? What does Jesus have to say about James and John's suggestion? Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. That is, that is, he had strong words of correction for his disciples. He corrected them in no uncertain terms. That sort of thinking is out of line for a Christ follower. That does not jive with 
who Jesus is and what Jesus wants. It does not reflect or promote in any way the Spirit of Jesus. On the contrary, and now you know why our scripture this morning was from Luke 6 while the lesson is from Luke 9, Jesus intends for us to love our enemies. James and John knew that. They had heard those words before. But those are the sorts of words that we have to hear again and again and again if there's any chance at all that they could take hold in our heart and make us different, make us obedient. Do you agree with that? This is hard stuff. But I say to you, Jesus says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. It takes no help from God, no power of God in our lives to love the people who love us, or, or to do good to the people who are already doing good to us. But we surely need God. We need the presence and power of God softening our hearts in our lives if, in fact, we are going to do good to those who would use us or abuse us or set themselves up against us if we're going to love those who oppose us, who may even seek to harm us. This is what Jesus tells us to do. The culture that we live in encourages us to pulverize our enemies. It's all about power. You see that, right? It's not based in values. It's based in who has the most power now. And when you have that power, use it and put people away. That's what our culture says. The culture encourages us to pulverize opponents, to eradicate those who would think different, differently, believe differently, behave differently than we do. That is the cancel culture way of expressing its condemnation. But Jesus' approach was not, is not that. John 3.17, nowhere is near as famous as the verse that comes before it. But John 3.17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus' approach, which we read about in John chapter 4, is not condemnation, but salvation. 
not condemnation, but conversation. His disciples were surprised when they returned from the city where they were buying food to find Jesus standing at the well, talking with a Samaritan woman. John chapter 4. It was shocking to her also, actually, that Jesus would even bother to speak. Jesus said, give me a drink. And she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan? For everybody knows that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Ironically, while Jesus would appreciate a drink of cold water from the well, he was actually striking up that conversation with a different end in mind. He was talking to this Samaritan woman, this five-time divorcee, who was living with a man who wasn't her husband. He was talking with her so she might be saved. It's not condemnation. It's salvation. The example of Jesus toward perceived enemies, not condemnation, conversation. That's what the Apostle Paul commends to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 23-36. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Think of those words, okay? Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. How much time have we wasted on foolish, ignorant controversies? Time we will never get back. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant is not to be quarrelsome. It really doesn't matter, friend, if everybody else is doing it. It's kind of the point, isn't it, that Jesus wants us to be different than what everybody else is doing. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to stand out and be set apart from the world, not neck deep in the world's ways. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. Think of those words the next time you want to rip someone to shreds, verbally or digitally. Think of this scripture the next time you might be lured into a Facebook spat. That's the algorithm. You know that by now, right? That's, that's the way it's supposed to work. Fires you up. Gets you engaged. Think about these words the next time you find yourself confronted with a neighborhood squabble. We cannot be like James and John. We cannot allow our unholy zeal to demean or to destroy another 
who is like us in that she or he is made in the image, the very image of God. Christians, we are not to be quarrelsome. We are to be kind. We are to be patient. And then you might say, well, does that mean we can't ever confront anything? Does that mean we cannot correct? Did, did Jesus have a problem with that? No. You may. You may confront and you may correct, but you must do it with gentleness. And you must do it with the right perspective, with the hope that God would grant repentance, that the person would be won, that the person would be persuaded, right? That's 2 Corinthians. That's what Paul says our job is to persuade. We're not here to hammer somebody into the truth. We're here to persuade people into God's ways being the right ways. We're not trying to hurt people. We want to help people. So yes, you may correct, but with gentleness and the hope that God would help those who are against him by setting themselves against his people. That those people would come to see how good God is, how beautiful he is, how, how true he is. And the reason I think that you and I should approach potential quarrelsome situations with kindness and gentleness and with grace and with a proper perspective that perhaps the enemy has a foothold here and that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. This isn't a personal thing, but, but the battle is spiritual and the reason we want to approach those with gentleness and grace is this, I think, is that that is how God has approached us. See, God is good to us. And God was good to us when we were at odds with him. So we must, in his example, seek the good of those who are at odds with us. And there is a simple takeaway this morning to this passage, I think. Don't do what all the cool kids are doing and cancel your enemies. Okay, that's, that's the takeaway. Don't be quick to write off or dismiss or otherwise harm those who seem to be against you. That's your natural inclination. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. You set yourself up against me and I will take you down. Don't follow that natural inclination. Don't be quick to write off or dismiss or otherwise harm those who seem to be against you, we have a higher calling, friend, from Jesus when it comes to our opponents. To treat them the way that we would want to be treated, regardless of how they are treating us. And to love them. Bow your heads with me if you would. Think for a moment about this. There might be someone in your life that you have considered an enemy, somebody you know who considers you an enemy. Maybe it's time for a new and different approach. Perhaps you haven't been actively seeking the harm of somebody who would be considered your enemy, but you have been sort of passively resistant to any opportunity at reconciliation to make it right. 
Let's pray about that. The love we need, God, and the grace we need, it's not something that we can just make happen. It must come from you. In and of ourselves, Father, we cannot image your great surpassing mercy. We struggle to act it out. We find it difficult to be obedient. When we are hurt, we are inclined to hurt others. When we are hurt by others, we are inclined to shut them off so the hurt could stop. We resent sometimes having to pray for our enemies. We resist doing good for our enemies. This is who we are. This is how we are. And Lord, you have set a bar for us that is too high for us to attain in our own strength. But through you and because of you, all things are possible. You have reconciled us to yourself through Jesus and tasked us with the responsibility to be your ambassadors of reconciliation in this world. Oh, forgive us, Father, where we have failed. And help us this day to set our face toward the love of our enemies and to resolve to display in our own lives, in our actions, in our words, the surpassing greatness of your mercy and your love so that you can be glorified. We pray in these moments, Lord, that you might melt our hearts that have become calloused and stony and replace them with hearts of flesh, tender hearts, vulnerable hearts, but hearts that we entrust to your hands as we seek to do your will for your honor. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.